Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. We seem to be living in a time when we're told one thing while clearly seeing something different. We used to think that what we heard with our ears and saw with our eyes was a good indicator of what was going on, but no, turns out that's completely wrong. Or not, it just depends. What's important is not what you saw or heard, it's what you're told you saw or heard. On today's episode, first we're going to marvel at greatness, then we'll contact the dead, and finally we'll learn that the best and brightest clearly didn't know what they were doing. So, Grab your airsick bag, light your seance candles, and practice saying, Oh, really? Because despite all information to the contrary, here we go. Look, I'm not suicidal. Now, normally I'd say that for when one of the three-letter acronymed government agencies swoop in and disappear me, and my loved ones, as I'm sure there must be at least one out there, would not rest until they got to the truth. And although, yes, this can be for that as well, I'm saying it right now because I just got done watching a Jill Biden interview. (laughs) Sorry, Dr. Jill Biden interview. And wow, I mean, if there were a spectrum from totally good to end it all, I definitely took one step in the wrong direction after watching this thing. Oh, found on Newsmax.com headline, Jill Biden to Newsmax. Cancer took our bow, my faith but restored our purpose. This was just an insufferable interview. The interviewer, Nancy Brinker, is apparently a longtime friend of the Bidens and looks to be about the same vintage of Jilly Bean, so they were just cackling away. And I'm not saying that this has anything to do with age. I'm friends with black people. No, wait, I'm sorry, wrong argument. I'm friends with old people. My parents are an old people. My church is an older church. I can honestly say that not all old people are terrible. I'm hoping to be one of those not terrible old people eventually. Soon. Of course, at my current rate of physical destruction, the term old may be relative. I mean, time will tell. But no, this video was terrible, and it was just over 20 minutes of simply awfulness. Look, let me lay my cards on the table so you know where I'm coming from. I think that Jill Biden is an opportunistic, self-absorbed, arrogant, nasty elder abuser. I hope I wasn't unclear. In my lifetime, out of the first ladies I remember, so start with Nancy Reagan for me, Jill is by far the worst, the cringiest. Say what you will about Melania Trump's past. Just looking at her time in the White House, she was one of, if not the classiest first lady since at least Laura Bush. Michelle Obama, I mean, besides having those fantastic arms, she wasn't unclassy, but she was also ah, just cringy. But Jill, Jill is a user. Jill reminds me of Hillary. You know that Bill and Hillary, if if they ever felt anything for each other, you know that died well before Billy's time in the White House. She was there for power and status. Well, that's who Jill is. Now, you may say that it's wrong of me to judge. You may ask how I could possibly claim to know these things. And look, I'm a pretty good judge of character, and I seem to have a decent ability to read people. 
Plus, this is my podcast. Back off of me. Anyway, this interview was supposed to be about the so-called cancer moonshot, and most of the interview did focus on cancer. It originally caught my eye because of the loss of faith, which is shocking, because based on the Marxist policies and the desire for baby murder, I kind of thought that faith, you know, really wasn't a thing they worried about. Spoiler alert, no matter what they say, faith is not anything that they care about. So where to start? Well, let me give a little backup to my claim that Jill is an opportunity succubus. We know that Biden had been married before, and multiple times he's told us all about his lies about how his first wife and child died. She and three kids were hit by a truck. She was in an intersection. She had a stop sign. The truck was coming down a hill. He did not have a stop sign. There was an accident. Joe repeatedly claims that the driver of the truck was drunk. Well, even Politico has debunked that story. He wasn't drunk. He wasn't charged with anything at all, in fact. But I was curious if Jill had been married before. And yes, she had. She was married to Bill Stevenson, who, if you look into him, he's been very successful in his own right, including one of the most successful college bars in the country called the Stone Balloon in Newark, Delaware, which is still open, and I believe it's still owned by Bill. They were married in 1970. He opened the bar a couple years later. They separated in 1974. She met Joe, a senator nine years older than her, early in 1975, introduced by Joe's brother Frank. After the first date, she apparently told her mother that she finally met a gentleman. Meanwhile, the divorce proceedings were ongoing. In the time she was married to Bill, she had been a student and done a little modeling on the side while Bill opened a bar. Well, she wanted half ownership in the bar in the divorce. She lost that fight, and the divorce was finalized in May of 1975. Now, I know that a divorce is supposed to be an even split, but the reality is she, at least it seems, contributed nothing to the bar, at least financially. It sounds like he did this out of his own income. So Jill finds a gentleman rather than an old college football player opening a bar. She wants half of what she did little to nothing for and then marries Joe. Bill, incidentally, is working on a tell-all book right now in which he claims that Jill was already involved with Joe well before they ever got divorced. Eh, She denies it. Gotta be honest, I kind of believe Bill. Anyway, Joe might have been a gentleman. That's possible. But judging her character by what we know today... I'd say she saw much greater opportunity in Joe to get the fame that she so craved. Anyway, this interview. Now, I'm not going to focus on the cancer side of things too much. Their cancer moonshot is going to transfer into the Moderna claim that they'll be able to use, you guessed it, mRNA vaccines, which are really genetic therapies, same as the COVID poison uh, chemical uh, vaccine, uh, to eliminate cancer by 2030. What we know right now is that there are a lot of oddities regarding cancers popping up out of nowhere in advanced stages, or cancers having been in remission for years or decades suddenly showing up and being terminal shortly after taking the so-called vaccine. So, I don't hold out a whole lot of hope for what could be potentially causing cancers to fix cancers, but I guess we'll see, won't we? By the way, Moderna, that's half-owned by the government, so it almost seems like it might be a potential conflict of interest, but uh, that might just be me. So, I'm going to focus on some of the claims and statements that Jill made in this interview. I've linked the interview in the notes, like always. Don't watch it. Just just trust me. Just, Just don't do it. Don't do this to yourself. So they were in a cancer center in Florida, which we know that Florida is a state 
of absolute hate and evil, so I don't know why she's there. I digress. Now, I'll give her some credit. She said that based on a number of friends in the 90s being diagnosed with breast cancer, she, not being a medical doctor, her words, but being a teacher, she started the Biden Breast Health Initiative. Now, if Joe started it, no, I shouldn't go down that road. Anyway, she went into schools in Delaware educating girls about good health, screenings, dangers of things like smoking, etc. And hey, good for her. Seriously, that's a good thing. Now, she says that Right now, they need to raise awareness because during the pandemic, people put off screenings, all screenings for cancers and health, etc. So she said that over the next few months, she thinks they'll have a large increase in incidence of cancers as people go back. I would say that, yes, I agree. I think that's right. But I kind of get the feeling that she's also trying to run some good old government cover because to think that our federal government doesn't see the data that the rest of us can see and that this odd cancer thing currently going on isn't, you know, <laughs> top of mind, is crazy. I could be wrong. It would be a first. It's possible, though. <laughs> okay, we come to the cancer moonshot, which, of course, was a result of their son, Bo's death. That's when Joe found purpose in trying to cure cancer. Okay, fine. She then said that they, and then corrects herself, Joe has put a lot of money into research. What does she mean by that? Okay, going to give you some numbers. Hang with me. According to a story on ABC News from 2008, from 1998 to 2008, Biden gave an average of $369 to charity per year. So she couldn't mean anything there. From a story on spectator.org, from 2020, the Bidens gave $1 million in 2017 and $275,000 in 2018, and then back to just 1.5% of their income at $14,700 in 2019. When you look into it a little deeper, and that's all I'm going to go is just a little deeper, it appears that the $1 million was spread out over two dozen charities, the $275,000 was spread out over a dozen charities. Although I didn't go look for the spread, in 2017, the Bidens were the namesake founders of the Biden Foundation, which was part of his cancer moonshot allegedly, which lasted for two years, paying employees about $3 million, doing no research, only collaborating. Jill mentions this later when they were breaking down silos. In 2015, the Bo Biden Foundation for the Protection of Children was formed, and that's also named as one charity they donated to, but again with no specific amount or percentage. Bottom line, except for possibly a moderate infusion of cash into the Biden Foundation, which did very little of anything for its two years of existence, when she says that he put a lot of money into research, she has to mean government money or donations. I'm not sure. It certainly wasn't his personal money. Then she says that he spent a lot of time, like I said, breaking down silos, which allowed doctors, scientists, and researchers to talk to each other. This is literally the claim of the Biden Foundation, but even there, it appears that this had a very minimal impact. And can I just ask this? Were the doctors, scientists, and researchers literally not talking to each other about what they were all working on? Because I kind of think this is just her embellishing the truth. Maybe not an all-out lie, but definitely not what she's making it sound like. And while we're here, let's talk about the cancer research funding, shall we? Because the claim is that Biden is investing more than ever into cancer research. Okay, a few more numbers coming up. Hang on. 
Per the site cancer.gov, which is apparently the website for the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, a chart of funding shows that this may not be altogether true. (laughs) Oh, shocking. If you look at the straight-up government funding, not counting special programs, we see that the dollar figure basically went up from 98 to 2012, then was cut back in 2013, who was president in 2013, then ticked up a little for 14 and 15, up a little bit more until 18, where 2018 through 2022 was flat at the highest funding in history at about $5.75 billion. When you add in the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act in 2009 and 10, you see a spike. And then in 2017 through 2022, there was a small amount extra tacked on from the cancer moonshot making 2019 the largest funding ever at just over $6 billion, with 2020 through today being right at $6 billion. But that doesn't really tell the entire story. So you guys remember inflation, right? Well, in addition to the actual dollars and funding, their graph includes the value of the dollars based on 1998 dollars, which was the first year of this graph. What you see is that from 1998 to 2004, the funding, the value of the funding, marched up pretty steadily from about 2.5 billion to just under 4 billion. Then in 2004, the value dropped all the way to 2015 from that just under $4 billion to just under $3 billion in value. Then in 2016, a slight uptick to 2018, holding steady through 2020, with the cancer moonshot money, of course, to a value of about $3.25 billion. And then in 2021 and 2022, the value is now back down to $3 billion. Okay, why do I give you all these numbers? Because what they're telling you is that they're funding cancer like never before, that the cancer moonshot is adding all this money. It's, it's going to get it done. The reality is that the funding is basically flat from 1998, and the cancer moonshot adds almost nothing. This is just smoke being blown where smoke don't belong, unless you just ate a Taco Bell. Then the question, how has faith helped you and the president get through these tough times? So Jill said that Joe leaned heavily into his faith. Jill, and admittedly, this is sad. This is a failure of the Christian faith, Protestant or Catholic. She said that she prayed so hard that Bo would live, that she believed because she prayed so hard that he would be healed and live, that when he died, she was angry and empty. But then a stranger came up to her a couple years later at a church in South Carolina, put her hand on Jill's knee, and said they were going to be prayer partners. And Jill had no idea what that was, but said okay. And apparently to this day, they still pray together. That's fine, I guess. And Jill feels that this was God's way of telling her it was time to come back. And then she jumps over to politics. As they comfort people with cancer, or people affected by the recent hurricane, or after a shooting, pause, in a school, they have to have faith in order to offer your prayers and faith to others. Okay, I've got to wonder, what faith are they talking about? The faith that they're practicing isn't the faith of a Protestant or a Catholic or anybody who claims to be any sort of Christian. They're pro-abortion. In fact, Joe's promised that if they can hold the House and the Senate, win a few more seats, they'll codify Roe into law, which is also admitting that Roe was never law to begin with, which is very interesting. They're pro-transgender affirmation, and whether this is for kids or adults, show me where that's a biblical thing. They're pro-homosexual agenda, Bible, Uh, 
They demonize the rich. I need to see that in the Bible. They promote racial division. That's not Christian. And need I go on? I'm not sure what faith they're allegedly practicing, but they have no Christian faith. What they have, or what Jill described, is the simple, unbiblical faith of easy believism. Basically, God is just enamored with you. He just can't get enough of you. And if he has to live without you, he just doesn't want to go on. And because of that, all he wants is for you to be happy. Live your life. Just rub the Bible and you can have your wishes granted. This is why Jill was so angry at Bo's death. Not that she couldn't have emotions. I don't fault her for that. But she's apparently been told that if she prays hard enough, God will grant your desire. That's not what we're promised. But that's what a lot of people in every form of Christianity today believe. But sin brought death. Cancer is a result of sin. And we know that God's ways are higher than our ways. We can't even begin to understand the mind and the plans of God. We just need to trust. This is not the faith of the Bidens. The Bidens are lost. I can see no path to them being saved right now with what they believe. I could be saved in the future. And I could be wrong right now. I don't know. I'm not the ultimate judge of their hearts, of their salvation. But I can't see how they can believe what they do, act like they do, do what they do, say what they do, and be saved at the same time. Moving on, we get into soft racism of the left. Apparently, this Nancy Brinker is involved with some sort of health center. I'm not sure. It sounds like it's a center to provide health screenings for those in poverty or in need. And Jill is so happy about this that, quote, they're going into communities, communities of color, that so need, you know, help with screenings and um, affordable screenings and uh, screenings they can get for free. I mean, it's you're doing a great job. Okay, so all Jill knows is that this was an opportunity to throw in the phrase communities of color. And as we all know, communities of color don't know how to get screenings or that they should. Or even if they want, they're all poor. So soft racism. (laughs) Those poor stupid Negroes just need the white man to help them. I mean, this is insulting and they do it all the time. (sighs) Then Brinker asks if Jill is enjoying her first time as the first lady and in the White House. And this is where the largest laugh, the biggest smile comes over Jill's face. (laughs) Of course she's enjoying it. That's what she's wanted since she met old uh, Joey Bag of Vegetables back in 1975. This is the reason she's propped up led around, wrangled, defended, and pushed an obvious dementia-riddled elderly man who should honestly be living out his remaining years at home with, well, not Hunter, that's a bad idea. Ever heard of a contact high? But with Jill and his grandchildren, under very close adult supervision, of course, rather than pushing him to be in a position of power. He should not be in any position of anything doing anything. But this is Jill's dream, and don't you dare question it. Now, from there, Jill says that she just loves how she's been able to meet so many people, like artists and educators, and then she couldn't think of anyone else, so she jumped to communities and cultures and how this country is just held together by its values. (laughs) Oh, is it? Because it seems to me that it's being cracked in half by two different sets of values currently at war with each other. Then they move to Ukraine and media and how lucky we are to have this vaccine. This is Newsmax, remember? And blah, blah, blah. And I literally just can't do it anymore. <laughs> uh, but I need to. Just just one more topic. What other interests does this wonderful angelic woman have? Well, 
She's got her Joining Forces initiative, which helps military families with whatever they need. And right now, her focus is to get those spouses out there working. They need to get working. They need to get a job to supplement their family income. Why? Well, the answer is pretty easy. We're not paying our military a living wage. The Army, for instance, in September suggested to their personnel that if they were having trouble battling inflation, uh, note uh, Biden's inflation, that they should just get on the SNAP program. You know, food stamps. Uh, Can someone tell me why we have our volunteer military personnel getting food stamps? Uh, They're spending money on queer garbage. They're spending money on anti-racism programs, you know, telling Whitey that he's evil. They're spending billions per week on money and equipment going to Ukraine, and they want our men and women to get on food stamps. Does that piss anyone else off, or is it just me? We have about 2 million active duty and reserve personnel. Do you realize that only $24 billion would give every single active duty and reservist person an extra $1,000 per month? We're currently working on yet another bill to give Ukraine another $50 billion right now. We've already given at least $50 billion to Ukraine in money and equipment so far, and we're telling our families to just get on food stamps and that the spouse needs to get her butt out there or his butt out there and get a job too. We could do so many things for them. Looking at the out-of-control spending on garbage in this country, why are they wanting for anything? Oh, but Jill just cares so much. Get a job. Then she has the gall to say that because we're not at war and it's only 1% of our population that serves, oh, we just forget about them. No, Jill, the Democrats forget about them. She said that they're getting ready. Yeah, well, according to a Heritage.org study just conducted recently, we are at the weakest point of readiness that we've been possibly ever. The study shows that not only could we not fight a war on two fronts, uh, the data is showing that we'd be hard-pressed to fight a war on one front. Maybe instead of forcing spouses to get jobs, forcing families to get on food stamps, forcing tranny, queer, racist garbage down the throats of our servicemen and women, giving away our equipment, our weapons, our munitions, and billions of dollars to Ukraine, a war we shouldn't be involved in at all, maybe we could just focus our efforts back at home and make sure that those that volunteer to protect us and our Constitution aren't simply meat shields so opposing forces don't have as many bullets, you know, for the rest of us civilians. Oh, I just can't take her insufferable attitude. She is just the worst. Everything, literally, and used in the literal sense of the word, literally everything the Marxist anti-Christ Biden administration has laid a bony finger or a prolonged sniff on has fallen apart. This is why the consensus is generally that this must be by design. There's no way you can just be this stupid to screw things up this bad. It's just not possible. Now, this country was founded by people that were either Christian or, at the very least, agreed with Christian principles and morals. They set up this system to allow the majority of the population to work, produce, provide, protect their families and communities, while a fraction of the population volunteered to protect us and our Constitution. The Constitution was set up to allow freedom, freedom of thought, freedom to live and believe. We are not a theocracy But we are a nation that used to be a nation reliant on God, at least for the most part. Today, we've placed into positions of power those that not only aren't religious, but hate God, hate all that Christianity stands for, and they show it every single day. Now, we're weeks away from a midterm election. If you want this country to have any chance at all, 
you need to get out and vote. And that vote needs to be conservative. Yes, we've got traitors and rhinos in there as well. We can sift them out over the next few election cycles, but we must start by getting the absolute enemies of the Constitution and the citizens, the enemies of God, out of any position of power. Jill and Joe may have faced trials in their lives that I don't wish on anyone, but that doesn't give them the right to destroy this country or to destroy religion or people but this is exactly what they're doing, all the while smiling and laughing. We must stop this now, or we may not have another chance. I'd like to say that this is hyperbole or drama, but look at the last two years, just the last two years. We're being told one thing while they're doing the opposite. We have an elder abuser smiling at us, laughing at us, while she props up someone who should be in an assisted living facility. And everyone that he's been told to put around him are people who don't care about America, don't care about the Constitution, hate God, and hate conservatives. This really has to stop. Ah, deep breath. Sorry for the rant. I really need to outline these reviews before I start typing things out. Keep myself on track. But I don't even know if that would have mattered. I think this is the one. I think this interview broke me. What happened to him? The nice rubber room facility nurse asks. Oh, he watched the Newsmax interview of Jill Biden by Nancy Brinker. Twice. Oh my, that poor man. Bless his heart. Yeah, that sounds about right. Hey, do me a favor. Make this self-inflicted pain worth it here. and Get out there and vote. And, and, and vote the right way. One of the worst parts of life in a sin-cursed world is the fact that life, sooner or later, comes to an end. If you're the one whose life is ending, if you're saved, hopefully for you to live was Christ, and now death is nothing but unfathomable gain. If you're not saved, this world is literally the best life you'll ever know. A side note, I'd suggest you find a solid biblical, gospel-preaching pastor and find out about this salvation thing. It's important now and for all eternity, literally. Now, as much as it hurts, death is a part of life. We have natural causes, diseases, tragedies, and accidents, and all manner of ways to pass from this earth. Regardless of if you're saved or not, when you lose someone you care about, it hurts. There's a time of grieving, and that loss may create a wound that may never heal entirely. But over time, we understand that this is just the way life goes. For those that are saved, we'll see each other again one day, and it'll be amazing. This helps Christians to deal with the grief of loss. It doesn't cure it or stop it, but it does help. Now, for the unsaved, the finality of it all can feel like more than they can bear. Even for those of us that are saved, losing a loved one and thinking of the unsaid words, the unexpressed emotions, the regrets, the missed opportunities, those kinds of things can haunt a person that's still walking this earth until they pass on. This is why, since the tree of life was cut off to humans, we've been looking for and fantasizing about living forever, being immortal, finding the fountain of youth, if you will. Today, we have medical advancements to the point that we can replace vital organs and joints. We have machines that will either help our bodies function or do the functioning for us. And along with various other medical advancements, living to somewhat older ages is commonplace today. Jared Kushner, Donald Trump's son-in-law, said recently that he wants to stay in shape because he believes that he may be the first generation to live forever. Now, a spokesperson said he was joking when he said that. I saw that part of the interview. He didn't appear to be joking at all. Whatever. He might believe this. If he believes medicine and technology will make that happen, well, I mean, good for him. 
As of right now, there's no way for that to happen. However, that being said, we're starting to move into the realm of transhumanism. Now, this is a mixture of man and machine that has the goal of eternal life. Now, they're not saying they can keep the body going forever, although they believe technology will do a lot. But the general belief is that we, or a form of we, can live forever. Found on technologyreview.com, headline, Technology that lets us speak to our dead relatives has arrived. Are we ready? I'm only going to touch on this article a little bit, but it's, it's a really interesting article, especially from a philosophical standpoint. You should read it. As always, the link is in the notes. Here's the gist of the article. A number of companies are now starting to come online with artificial intelligence programs that can somewhat mimic a loved one after they pass away. Now, this isn't magical, and it's still pretty clunky, but I predict these kinds of apps and programs will be very popular and very lucrative in the near future. So there are a few variations based on what the various companies are trying to do, but they all rely on the data being fed into them to begin with. So for the main company in this article, they're working on an audible version of your loved one. This requires extensive interviews with that loved one prior to their passing, obviously. Other companies are more of a text chat kind of bot. So they require all of your text messages and emails and instant messages and anything else that was written, memories, stories, anything in order to formulate text-based conversations. The most elaborate system seems to be video-based bots. This is basically the same as the audio version, but it requires extensive audio and video interviews in order to capture not only the voice and the information, but also the look and the mannerisms. Once these various companies have the information, they format and systematize all the data, then use an artificial intelligence backbone to create an artificial human replica of sorts. Once this is done, you can now carry on conversations with this person. Now, admittedly, there are rules as to how you need to interact, as in they don't handle interruptions and talking over each other well. They have to wait until you speak, and then you have to wait until they speak. Otherwise, they can't hear you. Also, the answers to the same questions will always be the same. There will be no variation in how the bot will answer you if you ask that same question. Sometimes the bot won't understand a question, and it needs it rephrased, or you just need to move on to a different topic. The audio conversations are somewhat wooden, as the AI tries to string together words and phrases or pick out correct sections of audio based on your questions. And as of now, these are simply recordings. There's no new information added. No new answers are generated. Now, in a way, this is not unlike what's been done for decades, recording family members to archive their memories, their stories, all before they pass away, so you could pull the recordings out every once in a while and relive some memories. But this goes a bit further. Rather than just listening to a recording, this is being used to somewhat replace the person that has died with what tries to give the appearance of that person still being alive. Now, as this author runs through her article, she points out that this is meant to help people to grieve their loss, to work through the pain. But she also cautions the reader that this could lead to an almost delusional false sense of reality. She also notes that the makers of these various technologies are very aware that this could be used for people that are still alive, say like an ex or a long lost friend, and that there is no law to stop someone from doing that, at least right now. 
Now, my thought is, why couldn't you just create your own fictitious person or create your own preferred version of a real person by using text you wrote yourself or even a realistic AI deep fake voice generator to generate answers to interview questions from that person and say for the ex that you just can't let go of, you know, turning him or her into the perfect soulmate. Additionally, for right now, these are just recordings, but we know that AI is advancing at a rapid pace. It won't be long before these kinds of services will offer to not only create your loved one, but also have it grow and learn with you, not only recounting old memories, but creating new memories and even altering its personality, turning it into something the actual person never was. Now, this could further skew our perception of reality, giving the user an even deeper impression that their loved one is still with them and literally erasing the real memory, replacing it with new computer-generated memories. And we're not that far from this becoming a reality. AI and technology is moving at an unbelievable pace right now. This is also where the concept of transhumanism, which is becoming very popular these days, comes in. The basic idea of transhumanism is parts as parts. We can replace organs and joints and bones, and we can replace and clean blood. Well, why not the brain too? The long-term goal of transhumanism is to live forever, but not necessarily as a flesh and blood human, not necessarily as a physical being at all, but a series of ones and zeros on a server somewhere. The belief is that all our memories, our personality, our very being can be condensed onto a handful of chips and then using that and a learning artificial intelligence will live forever. And it'll be just like we were in the flesh time. Back in 1982 on an episode of Doctor Who, and yes, I'm that kind of nerd, proud of it. If you don't know what Doctor Who is, it's a time-traveling, human-looking alien that travels through space and time, and in the span of about one and a half hours, gets into the worst predicaments, and by the end, saves everything, usually. You can look it up from there if you're curious. Well, in an episode entitled Four to Doomsday, the Doctor and his companions land on a spaceship with what appears to be a collection of people groups from all over the Earth at all different time periods. As we progress into the story, we learn that these people aren't people at all. They're androids. They used to be people millions of years ago, but they were rescued, quote unquote, from the flesh time when the leader of this ship, he scooped them off the planet, recorded their very being onto computer chips, disposed of the human, and placed the chips of some into the androids with billions of chips of other humans just sitting in drawers. Now, this was the way that this alien creature decided he could rescue humanity for his own not nice purposes. But it was viewed by the human robot people as slavery, since most of them were kept in drawers as computer chips. It wasn't an ideal situation for anyone, even after the doctor rescued them from the one that had nefarious intentions for them. Well, this is what those in the transhumanist community would like to do also, but probably with way better special effects. If we could all be placed on chips... Just think of how much less space we'd take up. Think of the resources we'd save. And it would be basically the same as always, right? But can we do this? And if we can, should we do this? And my simple answer is if we can, no, we shouldn't. Now, I can't foresee how this can go anywhere good over time. I just can't see it. When we cross over from a recording, which is all these various companies offer right now, just a smart recording, to an AI learning system that grows, develops, and changes over time, we've gone too far. 
we're currently blurring the lines between human and computer. There are those that act like AI will destroy us all, right? Well, what they seem to forget is that AI is not human. AI may be able to gather information, learn and adjust, etc., but the underlying system is a computer program. You can program AI to disregard information concerning anything, or to give added importance to certain things, or to have a particular bias or a slant. AI can be used badly. The real problem with this, and it just seems amazing to me that we've reached this point, is that there is a growing segment of humanity that don't consider humanity any different than a fleshy computer, and definitely don't regard it as anything unique or special. In a twisted way, this is just viewed as the next major step in our evolution. And this is why I say it's not a good thing, and my recommendation would be for Christians especially, to avoid this kind of technology. There are other companies out there that will do all of these same steps, the interview, the cataloging, the formatting, the preserving, but will stop before trying to create an artificial replica of a person. This can be a valuable service if you'd like to preserve all those memories. Of course, the sad thing is that even if you consider the memories to be valuable and precious, for nearly all of us, we're literally only a few generations away from our deaths to being completely forgotten. I mean, the memories are precious to those that experience them, or to the first one, or maybe two generations past the individual, and after that, the recordings would pretty much just gather dust, or at this point, digital dust. And although the companies that are doing this now generally fall into the same category, the next step in this process is where we don't need to go. Maybe let's not create a virtual human right now. Maybe just stop at capturing memories, if that's what you want to do. A human is not just the sum of his or her memories. We're definitely not a bunch of ones and zeros. By trying to digitize us, even with a smart AI engine, it will just create a soulless digital being, and that's all. But that's not what God created, and that's not what he knit together in your mother's womb. I just saw an article, or more accurately, an article headline, I think out of Japan the other day. A man married a hologram of one of his favorite anime characters with some sort of smart AI-based dialogue engine, the byline said basically that he's distraught now because he's having trouble relating to his new bride. Something like that. That's because no matter how good of a hologram, regardless of the artificial intelligence, despite the pre-programmed dialogue, a computer will never be a human. We're not a computer. We didn't evolve from animals that evolved from slime. This isn't the next evolutionary step. Now, all throughout the Bible, we see the uniqueness of humanity. Genesis 1 tells us that God created us in his image. He created a lot of things in six days. We know from the account of Noah that the breath of life was in both animals and humans. But we are the only creation that was created in the image of our creator. Psalm 139 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. We're the only created beings that were created with a soul. Jesus tells us in Matthew to fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Ecclesiastes says that when we die, the spirit returns to God who gave it. We know that human life is precious. From Genesis 4, we see the first murder, and the Lord says that Abel's blood was crying to him from the ground. We know that human sacrifice has always been an abomination. God gave rules concerning murder, manslaughter, and accidents that resulted in death. 
Now, animals, as much as we love them and enjoy them, are not given this prominence. Animals also had a very important purpose in God's plan, but it was for their blood to cover the sins of man, until, of course, the Lamb of God came. Being created in the image of God doesn't mean that we were made in the same physical form, since God is spirit. Rather, we're made with the capacity for love, for justice, for mercy. We have the ability to learn and gain wisdom. We're also the only beings that were created that are capable of sin. It's capable of stepping outside of what we were created to be, violating our creation. Animals can't sin. Plants can't sin. Stars can't sin. They just do what they do. Only man has the capability of sin. So we're a unique creation. Computers are not, and chips and recordings are not. Now, sadly, people, and I think specifically the unbelieving world with no hope of an afterlife, no hope of salvation, those that believe that when you die, that's it, I think they'll use this because death is terrifying because of their perception of its finality. This type of technology and what will come from it will allow people the illusion, or more accurately, the delusion, that their loved one did not die. But even death has an importance in life. Sin brought death into this world. Every time we see anything die, every possum four feet sticking up in the air on the side of the road should remind us the curse that sin has wrought on this planet. Without death, sin is theoretically powerless. With sin being powerless, with death not being a thing anymore, since we can create immortality, what did Jesus die for? His death would lose all significance. Without death, there is no hope for a resurrection, as there would be nothing to resurrect. Now, I know these are extreme points, but they're, they're not incorrect. The world wants God to be gone. They want him out of our lives. Go bother someone else. The transhumanist agenda is yet another step to cut God out. Send him packing. Hey, you did fine for a while, but we've got this now. Our time has come. Now, will we ever get to this point? I don't know, probably not on a large scale, but yeah, I mean, we will continue edging this direction, and there will be those that will be essentially transferred to computer chips and loved ones that will forever have their AI family member learning and growing as an artificial human in whatever capacity. Now, as sad as it is for someone to die, this dystopian sci-fi world that's being crafted for us is a pitiable attempt by a lost world to stave off death and gain immortality. As Christians, we need to embrace life and embrace death. We need to be able to show the lost world that through one man, sin and thus death entered the world. But by the death of one God-man, death and sin were conquered. And now we all have the opportunity to die once, but live twice, rather than live once and die twice. The basic principle of entropy is that everything tends toward disorder. If you leave your car in the rain and the sun, over time it'll fade and start to fall apart. How many abandoned barns do you see where the roof is caving in and the walls are bowing out? Have you seen you lately? Do you remember what you used to see? Funny story, about five years ago I finally broke down and got some readers. I didn't have to use them, but they did make reading the small stuff eh, a little bit easier. But it was probably only a year ago that I used them while I was in the bathroom, shaving. The first time I put them on and looked in the mirror, oh, wow, entropy. Anyway, because of the curse of sin, entropy, the winding down, the failing, the degrading, the tending toward disorder and chaos, it affects everything. 
Welcome back to the American Genesis, episode 14. This is part six in our look at the Constitution. Today we're going to dive into Article 2, the Executive Branch. For those of you that are constitutionally challenged, the Executive Branch consists of the President and Vice President. So why the intro covering entropy, you may ask? George Washington to Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. And just so you don't think that I'm implying that starting from the general of the revolution, a reluctant president, perhaps the greatest of presidents that was hand-selected, in fact begged to lead the country during its infant years, moving to our current office holder, President Vegetable, means that I'm saying entropy is simply cognitive ability only. Let me present Vice President John Adams to Vice President, don't ask me what I did to get where I am, Kamala Harris. Yeah, we uh, we see a general degradation of the quality of the executive branch as well. Of course, with anything, the way you reverse or at least hold back entropy is to inject some energy, some work into the system. By doing that, you can wind back the hands of disorder, at least to some degree. But what did the founders envision? What did they give us? And does it resemble anything that we're seeing today? Well, let's find out. So starting with Article 2, Section 1, we read, The executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. He shall hold his office during the term of four years, and together with the vice president chosen for the same term, be elected as follows. Each state shall appoint, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress, but no senator or representative or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed an elector. The electors shall meet in their respective states and vote by ballot for two persons, of whom one at least shall not be an inhabitant of the same state with themselves, and they shall make a list of all the persons voted for and of the number of votes for each, which list they shall sign and certify and transmit sealed to the seat of the government of the United States directed to the President of the Senate, the President of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and the House of Representatives, open all the certificates, and the votes shall then be counted. The person having the greatest number of votes shall be the President, if such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed. And if there be more than one who have such majority, and have an equal number of votes, then the House of Representatives shall immediately choose, by ballot, one of them for President. And if no person have a majority, then from the five highest on the list, the said house shall in like manner choose the president. But in choosing the president, the votes shall be taken by states, the representation from each state having one vote. A quorum for this purpose shall consist of a member or members from two-thirds of the states, and a majority of all the states shall be necessary to a choice." In every case, after the choice of the president, the person having the greatest number of votes of the electors shall be the vice president. But if there should remain two or more who have equal votes, the Senate shall choose from them by ballot the vice president. The Congress may determine the time of choosing the electors and the day on which they shall give their votes, which day shall be the same throughout the United States. 
No person except a natural-born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall be eligible to the office of president. Neither shall any person be eligible to that office who shall not have attained to the age of 35 years and been 14 years a resident within the United States. In case of the removal of the president from office or of his death, resignation, or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office, the same shall devolve on the vice president, and the Congress may by law provide for the case of removal, death, resignation, or inability, both of the president and vice president, declaring what officer shall then act as president, and such officer shall act accordingly until the disability be removed or a president shall be elected. The President shall, at stated times, receive for his services a compensation which shall neither be increased nor diminished during the period for which he shall have been elected, and he shall not receive within that period any other emolument from the United States or any of them. Before he enter on the execution of his office, he shall take the following oath or affirmation. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will to the best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. All right, a lot of stuff in there, some of which should have made you say, well, I didn't know that. I mean, at least it did to me. All right, let's hit the basics first. The president and vice president served four-year terms. There was no limit until later. We'll get to that in time, as well as why a limit of two terms was enacted. They both must be a natural-born citizen, or because this would have disqualified probably the best qualified people at the time, they had to be a citizen when the Constitution was adopted. They had to be at least 35 years old and a resident in the United States for 14 years. Okay, first of all, the clause about being a citizen when the Constitution was adopted no longer applies. If anyone is running for president today that was alive then, they're probably a zombie or a vampire or some other form of the undead. So probably don't vote for that creature unless they're solidly conservative, in which case I'm listening. The only other possibility of someone being that old is the current resident of the White House. So, you know. The president should be paid, but he isn't to get some sort of a raise during his term, and he isn't allowed to take any money from any other entity. Now, regarding the 14 years of resident, why the 14 years? No, seriously, I'm asking, why 14? I mean, I looked, albeit quickly, but I, I have no idea why that number. I guess that it has some significance. Maybe it had to do something with the declaration being signed in 1776. The Constitution was written in 1787. I don't know, figure a year or so for adoption. 1790 is a nice round number. I don't know. I have no idea. Now for a few of those, huh, what you know about that points? The Electoral College. The thing that pretty much every Marx uh, Democrat today wants to be rid of because when they win, it's fine. But when they lose, the college is rigged. This is where we see that we are not a democracy. A democracy would be a popular vote system on everything. And if that was the case, a lot of the policies that the leftists have enacted wouldn't have come even close to passing, as the population is generally against the individual policies from the left. Not everything, but generally and a lot. But this electoral college was meant to de facto represent the people, so the people would vote and elect their state legislature, the state legislature would decide how their electors were selected, the idea being that if the people voted for the reps, the reps would choose from the people electors that would align with the people. 
The number of electors each state gets is the same as the number of senators plus representatives from that state in the federal government. Now, you may have known that. I did not. I looked it up because surely they've changed that, but uh, but no, that's, that is what it is. Uh, for example, California has 53 representatives plus their two senators. They have 55 electoral votes. Randomly looking around, down south, Oklahoma, for example, has five representatives and two senators. They have seven electoral votes. Uh, let's go to the top of the country, uh, randomly choosing Wisconsin. They have eight reps, 10 senators, 10 electoral votes. And of course, we don't want to leave out the eastern side of the country. How about the oft-forgotten state of West, almost heaven, Virginia? Take me home, country roads. They only have three lonely, sad reps, plus two senators, which gives them five votes. Now, I don't know why that's fascinating to me. I just never knew that, and I like to be a learner. Now, this system makes sense, though, you know, if you really think about it. As the number of reps is based on the population, and the electoral votes is by default based on the number of representatives, it all adjusts with population shifts. Pretty ingenious system. Now, as for the electoral process, the voting day, or now voting season, has changed over time. That's neither here nor there. That was left open for discretion. The electors at the appointed time would meet, and each elector would cast their vote for president. Only for president. They would vote for their top two candidates, one of which could not be a resident in their state. Did you know that? These votes would be collected and certified in each state and sent to the Congress, specifically the president of the Senate. They would collect and count all the votes, and the top vote-getter would be the president, if that person got the majority of the votes. The second highest vote-getter would be the vice president. But there were some caveats here. If more than one got a majority and they tied, the House of Representatives, remember, these are the people that represent the citizens, they would vote by ballot and choose the president. If nobody got the majority, then the House would take the top five vote-getters, and by ballot, they would vote for and choose the president. In both cases, the voting process would be one vote per state. That would take away the advantage of a large state over a small state. And this concept is literally the main argument the left has with the Electoral College. They're heavily liberal states with large population centers should count more, to the point where they should be able to dictate elections. They don't really like that a group of less populated states can negate them. And then if the second vote total is tied, then the Senate would vote and choose the vice president. Now, the process actually could result in the president and the vice president ending up from different parties. Now, I'll be honest, I kind of like that idea. Could you imagine a Trump presidency with Hillary as the VP? How about a Biden presidency with Trump as the VP? Oh, oh, politics would be so entertaining these days. Uh, but alas, a short time after adoption, in 1803, the 12th Amendment was adopted, which changed the electoral process. So each elector votes on two ballots, one for their top two for president, the other for their top two for vice president. This allowed the presidential candidate to have a running mate with a chance of being elected with him. Our electoral college system is today really nothing more than a kind of a faux front. The people vote. The winner of the popular vote gets the electors. It literally doesn't have to be that way. The people don't have to vote, not for these offices. could just be left to the electors only. And the electors are under no obligation to vote for the popular vote winner. But they do. So we're kind of a democracy, sort of. I don't know. We'll cover all of this in the amendments soon-ish.
They also made a provision for cases where the president can't finish his term for whatever reason. And this applies to the vice president as well. In the case of the president, the vice president would take over as president. If both are, for whatever reason, not able to perform the duties of president, Congress chooses who should take over. And that individual would be acting president until either the elected president or vice president was able to discharge those duties once again, or another president is elected. When the Congress declares the line of succession, it's called the Presidential Succession Act. Three times in history, this has been declared. In 1792, the Senate proposed an act that would name the president pro tempore of the Senate as the next in line, with the Speaker of the House being the next after that. Now, the House didn't like it and rejected it. The Senate folded their arms and held their breath, and the House said, fine. So that was the succession in 1792 until 1886. Now, in 1881, President James A. Garfield died, and the vice president, Chester A. Arthur, moved into that slot. At that time, however, there wasn't a president pro tempore of the Senate, and there wasn't a Speaker of the House, so those two positions and the vice presidential seat were all left vacant for about a month until a new pro tempore was selected, and a couple months later, a new Speaker was elected. Then in 1884, President Grover Cleveland's vice president, Thomas A. Hendricks, died eight months into his term, and again, there was no direct successor. So Congress decided they needed to fix this succession thing. Senator Hoare, H-O-A-R, an unfortunate name, reintroduced a succession bill that he introduced in 1882, but that was killed. This time it passed. This act replaced the 1792 Act and also replaced the president pro tempore and the speaker with cabinet-level positions in the order of their creation as the succession line. There were other caveats as well, but this was the gist. The last modification to the succession was done in 1947. So in 1945, right after Vice President Harry S. Truman took over for the deceased President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he sent a message to Congress asking them to revise the Succession Act of 1886. He wanted the Speaker and the President pro tempore of the Senate to be reinserted back into the line ahead of the cabinet positions. His point was that it didn't seem right that a president could select and appoint his successor. This taken down a nefarious route, could allow an elected president with impure intentions to move an unelected bureaucrat into a position of more power by simply resigning. Truman felt that someone moving into an elected position should be someone that was elected. The bill was introduced, sat on for a while, reintroduced, finally debated, voted on, and passed. And that's the order we still have today, 75 years later. So the current order, with the current office holders, at least to a point here, is first, Vice President, that's Kamala Harris, second, Speaker of the House, that's Nancy Pelosi, third, President pro tempore of the Senate, which is right now Patrick Leahy, one of the leftiest leftists in the Senate, fourth is the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, fifth is Secretary of the Treasury, (laughs) Janet Yellen, sixth is the Secretary of Defense, uh, Lloyd Austin, Uh, Seventh is Attorney General, oh, Merrick Garland. Eighth is the Secretary of the Interior, Deb Haaland. I have no idea, but she's probably terrible. Ninth is the Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack. And tenth is the Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo. And then after that, you have the Secretary of Labor, then Health and Human Services, Housing and Urban Development, Transportation, Energy, Education, 
Veterans Affairs, and finally, Homeland Security. Now, this is why when someone says we need to get rid of Biden, you know, he needs to be disqualified as a dementia patient or a traitor, (laughs) either or, look at the chain of the Constitution hating America, hating Marxists that are in line behind him. We literally have nowhere to go. That said, he still needs to go. He's a danger to the world at this point. And that brings us to the final bit, the oath of office, an oath to swear or affirm that he will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States and that he will do all he can to preserve, protect and defend the Constitution, which makes me wonder, when did it become okay to take this oath and then immediately turn around and start badmouthing the Constitution and claim that stuff like Obamacare and abortion is defended in there while claiming that gun ownership and freedom of speech is not? It almost seems like faithfully executing the office literally means defending the Constitution. Speaking of recent history, neither Obama nor Biden did or is doing either of these. How does that not disqualify the rogue presidents? Now, also notice that so help me God was not in the original oath, and it's still not in the official oath, which is still the original oath. The most cited myth is that Washington added it to the oath when he took it, of his own volition. There are questions about the veracity of that claim. The claim then goes on to say that every president has said it since Washington, but that's also not correct. Now, we apparently have proof that Chester A. Arthur said it in 1881 when taking over from Garfield after his death. Taft, Harding, Coolidge, and FDR all added it, and all presidents since then have done likewise. But prior to 1933, we apparently only know of four of the 31 that for sure said it. Now, I don't know. I'm not going to research it. All I know is that it was not part of the original oath. Now, this is pure speculation on my part, but I wonder if the founders were referring back to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus speaking of oaths when creating this oath of office. In that section, Jesus said, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, if you look at the oath as written, it literally is just a yes or no type of thing. It doesn't swear by anything. It's just a president saying that, yes, I'll do my job, and yes, I'll defend the Constitution. The so help me God part, although most Christians look at this as proof that we're a Christian nation, it's really just most of these oath takers using the Lord's name in vain. They're invoking a God that they don't believe in, they don't care what he has to say, if he even is real, and they would prefer that he just die and get out of the way so humans can get this thing right. I'd actually prefer for no candidate to use that phrase unless he is a legitimately born-again Christian individual. I don't need my God's name on the lips of those who hate him. And with that, we probably need to stop this episode and bring it to a close. I intended to cover more of Article 2, But I'm more intended, no, I intended greater, I'm more intendier to not shortchange you in covering these important historical documents that have given us, at least from a human standpoint, everything we have today, as we need to know this because these documents and this system is in serious jeopardy. So, 
On the next episode, we'll cover the rest of Article 2, and from there, things start to move pretty quickly. I swear. Oh, wait. No, wait. At any rate, this has been yet another look at the American Genesis. So, go tell someone what you've learned, and tell them where you've learned it, and I'll see you back here soon. Till next time. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Thank you.